all across America and around the world. This is Veterans Radio. This is Veterans Radio. Welcome to Veterans Radio. I am Jim Fawson. I'm the officer of the deck today. We've got some great programs for you. I think you'll find very interesting. We always want to remind you, you can find more about Veterans Radio at its Facebook site or by going to veteransradio.net where we're on the web 24-7. You can find a lot of our podcasts there as well. We post new ones every Tuesday, so you can get a new story, a new interview, something you didn't know before by going to veteransradio.net. And before we get started, we want to thank our sponsors. First up, we want to thank National Veteran Business Development Council, nvbdc.org. It was established to certify both service-disabled and veteran-owned businesses. You'll find out how they can help your business by going to nvbdc.org. We want to thank Legal Help for Veterans. Legal Help for Veterans fights for veterans' disability rights all across the nation. You can reach them at 800-693-4800 or on the web at legalhelpforveterans.com. We also want to thank our latest national sponsor, Veteran Lending Council. It is a community dedicated to educating lenders, realtors, and veterans on the VA Home Loan Benefit Program. You can check them out on Facebook and other social media outlets. We want to welcome to Veterans Radio today, Tom Claven. Tom is a prolific author. We've had him on before uh, talking about some of his writing. Uh, we had him back on a long time ago, May of 2014, on his book, Last Men Out, a true story of America's heroic final hours in Vietnam. Tom, welcome back to Veterans Radio. Well, thank you. I really appreciate you having me back. Well, we're going to talk about a book that's coming out to the ut- uttermost ends of the earth, the epic hunt for the South's most feared ship and the greatest sea battle of the Civil War, which I had never really heard about. So this is one of those things where this is how you how you get the history you never got in school mm-hmm. by, by listening to Veterans Radio and reading some of the great uh, books and authors that uh, we bring to you. And you had a writing partner on this, Phil Keith. Uh, Phil was also on Veterans Radio back mm-hmm. in October of 2013 on his book, Black Horse Riders. Both of you guys are pretty prolific uh, authors. Uh, Phil's now passed away. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your writing partner here? Well, Phil and I had gotten to be friends, I'm going to say, probably about 15 years ago. Uh, he Actually, I was doing a writing workshop, and he came in to participate in the writing workshop uh, as as some people may recall who listened to his interview on 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 your the network, um, he had uh, served three tours in Vietnam. He was a, a fighter pilot. Uh, he was he was, uh, uh, and and then he wanted to try his hand at writing. He had been writing, but he he was actually working on a novel at the time, and he wanted some help in this workshop try to finish that up. And but as I got to know him better, and then the workshop was over, but we started to become friends and become became better and better friends, and and then ultimately very very good friends. And um, I remember, I'm glad you mentioned Black Horse Riders because 
I said to Phil, you know, I really think you're you have a really strong strength for nonfiction writing. I mean, nothing against your fiction writing, and if that's what you, you know, pleases you the most, then keep going. But uh, I said, I bet if you found the right story, you know, you could really sink your teeth into it. And as it happened, uh, this was probably 2010-ish. Um, I, I picked up a newspaper that day, and there was a photograph of President Obama uh, presenting the presidential unit citation to a number of men who had who had been in this company in Vietnam that had they had but their their heroism had in this, this battle had gone overlooked for you know forty something years, so they're getting finally getting their due, and uh, and I called Phil and I said, did you see the paper this morning? He said, yep. He said, I think I'm thinking the same thing, and so he started looking into this uh, story, which eventually became Black Horse Riders. He did uh, he did a great job, I thought. He did a, a follow-up to that, which Firebase Ellingworth. And and uh, so we, we, we were not writing partners, but very good friends. And then we sort of both at the same time found out about this fellow, Eugene Bullard, and started to then we said, you know, let's let's try and work together. You know, and that sounds like it's a casual thing, but it's not. You know, they say you shouldn't go into business with friends. Right, right. <laughs> and writing a book together is going into business. You know, you might spend the next year or two working together and, and, and sometimes disagreeing on where you're going. And and there is money involved. How do you figure out the contract? Who gets what? You know, there's all kinds of things to it. But we so enjoyed our experience with uh, what, what became the, the – um, all Blood Runs Red, which was published in 2019, that we thought, well, if another story comes along, and Phil, again, being a Navy man, um, uh, we, we we started to research the story about the Civil War battle between the uh, CSS Alabama and the USS Kearsage, and that was right up his alley. And so we said, okay, let's let's do another book together. <laughs> together. And our publisher was delighted because they were very happy with the way All Blood Runs Red turned out. Turned out. And uh, and so we, we did this book together as, as a good amount of research and, and Phil, you know, did a fantastic job because there's so much of the jargon in the book that's that's about eighteen sixties boats and sailing. Right, right. And of course he, he his mind was picked that up right away. Some of it he already knew, of course, having been twenty five years in the Navy. So um uh, so we really enjoyed working on this book together and it was a story we thought many people did not know about and uh and unfortunately, Phil, a number of, of uh, ailments started to, to pile up on him, and uh, he passed away on March 10th of last year. Yeah, r- way too early. He was only 74 years old. I'm sure he mm-hmm. had a lot of good books left in him. He had, yes. read, he had written on uh, the USS Lexington. Uh, he had written, yes, written a great yeah. uh, story or great book, uh, the stories of the Medal of Honor winners from uh, mm-hmm. Harvard called uh, the books Crimson Valor. You've also written... On World War II, Lightning Down, um, uh, you've written on a book called Reckless, the Racehorse Who Became a Marine Corps Hero that a lot of people Marine know Corps. about. Um, Marine Corps horse, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you guys were a great combination, uh, and, and this is an interesting book. May have the worst title I've ever heard. Is it long enough? It's it's uh, more than long <laughs> enough, but there's a reason for the title, and let's start yeah. there. Um, uh, the Kearsarge gets uh, a direction, an order, if you will, and tell us about that, and that wraps right into the title, to the utmost ends of the earth. Well, what happened was that the most people know what, if they think about the Civil War and any battles that were fought in the water, 
they think of the Mer- you know the monitor and the Merrimack, and they think about the inshore and the blockade blockade uh, battles as as Confederate ships tried to escape Charleston and Savannah, you know other other southern ports. But there was actually a uh, a sea battle that was off the coast of France between a Union ship and a Confederate ship. Now the Confederate ship was the CSS Alabama, captained by Raphael Sims, that had started sailed in 1862 and had for the next couple of years it went all around the world finding and sinking Union shipping. And this was of increasingly frustrating. It was damaging to the Union cause to some extent because some of the things it was hoping to get from the Caribbean, from European ports, from elsewhere was was just not arriving because it ended up in the bottom of the sea. So the Secretary of the Navy in the Lincoln administration was uh, Gideon Wells. And uh, he summoned a man named John Winslow, who was a veteran Navy captain, uh, Navy officer, and put him in charge of the USS Kearsage. And Wells said to him, your mandate is go to the uttermost ends of the earth if you have to, but find and sink the Alabama. Those are pretty and broad orders. For pretty any broad orders. And, and, and Wells, you know, the funny thing is about Wells, there were other ships looking for the for the Alabama. Uh, he he didn't necessarily have a lot of confidence in, in Winslow. Winslow was kind of like a plodding officer who was a, he was a good, good seaman and he was a good officer and very devoted to the Union cause. But he had not really previously distinguished himself as particularly dashing or 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 spontaneous or or, or all that successful in a, in a way. So yet it was it was Winslow whose doggedness was turned out to be a a uh, advantage who chased uh, the CSS Alabama around the world and finally cornered, cornered him, and it resulted in this this amazing uh, battle between these two ships, and only one of them would survive. Well, it's interesting because the mission here, the mission for the Alabama from the south was go to interrupt trade. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't have a Navy that can compete, but let's go out there and interrupt trade and uh, boy, that sounds kind of like what we're going through today as Russia and Ukraine are battling and trade becomes a weapon of war, if you will. Um, so as I read this, there there are things that resonate even today, yes. um, you know, a hundred years later, um, if you will, uh, about how the war wars are fought and how folks go about them. So the Alabama you mentioned was on the seas for three years. Mm-hmm. If anybody's ever been on a ship, <laughs> you're going to go insane over three years. How did Raphael Simmons uh, keep his crew together and actually stay provisioned and, and uh, moving for three years, some 75,000 miles on the sea? Well, for one thing, the Alabama was a, a brand new ship. It had been built in in in, uh, in Liverpool, England, and so it was it it was a state of the art ship for its time, and built to last, and built to be fast, and built to be strong. You know, it, it, it overpowered other ships it, it encountered. So it it, it had some uh, you know endurance in it. Um, I mean, eventually, any ship at sea is uh, in those days, certainly in the eighteen sixties. Is going to start needing repairs. It's going to start wearing out. It's going to. There's a lot of wear and tear. The storms that you go through, uh, uh, barnacles, you know, all kinds of things like that. So that eventually did add up for the Alabama, but it did have a captain that had great fortitude. And uh, and the, the other thing too about Sam's was that he was old for a captain, 
and I'm going to so I don't want anybody to be offended when I say this, but he was in his mid fifties. Now in his mid fifties today, you're still climbing mountains. You know, you're, you're doing all kinds of stuff. But in the 1860s, uh, when the when the uh, average lifespan of an average American male was, may have may have been 50, and, and not only was Sam st- still alive and active, but he was the captain of the most successful Confederate ship of the Civil War. So, uh, so he, and he he was. Uh, the the crew he had he had a good crew that believed in him, and so he could he could go into a port and they wouldn't just all run run off and disappear. Uh, they did find that uh, they found many friendly ports. Certainly in 1862 and 1863, they found ports in in Southeast Asia, in Europe, in South America. They went went to Cape Town, South Africa, that were you know welcoming to the Alabama because some of these some of these countries, some of these people were actually in favor of the Southern cause that that changed in 1864. It was more, becoming more and more obvious that the South was, was uh, at a point of diminishing returns. And, and uh, some of the, actually the success of the Alabama had hurt some of the ports uh, because union ships were not coming there anymore. So that was hurting them and their economy. So uh, it is, it is very remarkable. 75,000 miles, this, the, the CSS Alabama logged and, and and yet when when it encountered the uh, finally encountered the uh, the Kearsage, uh they were going to fight. They were going to fight. They were going to say, "Okay, we're tired. We're giving up." No, they were they 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 challenged the they were in the in the port of Cherbourg in France, and they said, "We're coming out. We'll meet you on the ocean." Well, you mentioned that the the uh, ship was built. The Alabama was built in Britain, and that it you know had the advantages of friendly ports. It kind of again you know rang true with me. As I'm reading this, the context of the importance of foreign countries, the role of foreign countries and and maybe merchants and arms dealers uh, in advancing any war, and and there was sort of a subterfuge to get the the uh, uh, Alabama uh, outfitted with arms. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, that's a, to me that that was a fun aspect of the story because. You know, officially, England could not build a ship for the Confederates. You know, that would that would give them a lot of trouble with with the Lincoln administration, and, and who knows who knows that that could have eventually, you know, uh, 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 trans transformed into Union ships and English ships confronting each other on the high seas. So uh, the Confederate agent there, who had had money, and and he uh, he had to hire this have this ship built as if it was a private ship. Uh, and, and, you know, wink, wink. <laughs> so it was, this, it was an amazing ship. What they didn't do at, and when it was built was put weapons on it so they can still maintain the fiction that this was a private ship. So separately, the, the ship, uh, uh, when it was ready to go and it had to sort of escape at the last minute because the union was getting wise that this was going to be a Confederate ship. You know, it left on a so-called training mission, or, or it was going to see if everything was working all right, and it never came back. Separately, another ship was loaded with weapons, cannon, everything like that, gunpowder, and it rendezvoused with the Alabama. I think it might have been in the Azores, where the um, all this stuff was the you know, the guns were placed on the on the Alabama and locked in, and the ammunition and other supplies needed. And suddenly, the CSS Alabama was a a warship and a very very 
powerful one. And fully outfitted, although the fiction was it was, you know, not a military ship and privately constructed in Britain. Again, kind of rings true for us even today how we play some of these games. Mm -hmm. One of the things I found really interesting in the book, To the Uttermost Ends of the Earth, by Phil Keith and Tom Clavin, there really was no uh, significant uh, northern or southern uh, navy at the time, and it was a very small military world of officers, and how all of these naval officers had crossed paths um, somewhere in their careers before they find themselves on opposite sides of the of the uh, American Civil War. That was interesting history, and and you really brought that to life for uh, Captain Raphael Sims and Captain John Winslow. So I thought you did a great job with that. Yeah, thanks. I mean, most people they 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 think about uh, you know the, the when the beginning of the war as war was imminent, the Civil War was imminent. That officers, West Point graduates, West Point you know students, West Point graduates had to make these. These decisions, you know, if a, if, a, if a West Point graduate was a captain in the U.S. Army, but he was from Mississippi, do I do I join the Confederate States of America or do I stick with my with the with the U.S. Army? But that was also true of Annapolis. Uh, Annapolis, I think, began as a U.S. Naval Academy. I'm going to say in 1845. It is in the book. And so you had the same thing. You had these graduates of Annapolis who. They had to make this very tough decision, and they had crossed paths, a lot of these fellows in the years. I mean, Raphael Sims and John Winslow had been friends on, serving on the same ship uh, in, the, in the 1840s. Um, so there were very difficult decisions to be made, and Sims, who was a, 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 a Southerner by, by birth, uh, he made his decision to go with the Confederate States. John Winslow, I think, was built was born in North Carolina, if I remember correctly. Yet he chose to stay with the Union and, and keep his position in the, in the rankings of officers in the, in the Union Navy. But what you said before was very true, too. The Union Navy, I mean, the Confederate States of America had no Navy when the war began. And the Union Navy had been downsized after the Mexican-American War. And suddenly, you know, you have a civil war here and they have to see what, what still floats. What, what, can we, what can we put out there as a Navy? It's it, and and so if you're a, a naval historian or a Civil War buff, you're going to really enjoy that portion of the book because it's going to tell you about how those all those officers kind of crossed past along the way and had to make these decisions. So, uh, folks who are uh, in that category of historians will mm. need to pick this up and read it. One of the things I found interesting and somewhat amazing actually was that 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 the CSS Alabama, did I n- note this right? They, they uh, captured or destroyed something like 66 ships? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What, you know, the, the Alabama was faster and stronger than just about every ship it encountered. So, you know, these, especially the merchant ships. So they would, uh, they would fight, they would see these ships, they would chase them down, they'd, they'd make, make them, you know, stop and, and they'd be boarded. Now, if if a captain had papers that showed that this really was the what the cargo he was carrying really was uh, French or English or German or whatever, then uh, you know Sims would recall his sailors and and, and off they'd go to, uh, you know in their separate ways. But if if it was a cargo that was bound for a Union port and it was Union goods, then uh, he would have the crew removed and he would set. Oh, the other thing he would do, he would have he would take the captain's chronometer. 
<laughs> a, a, a peculiar kind of uh, a little trophy. Uh, yeah, he, from each ship that he took, he he would keep as a as a, as a keepsake the the other captain's chronometer. He had this big chronometer collection in his cabin, and uh, but he would remove the other ship's crew and then burn it, and uh, and everything on it. And and it, it's kind of a, a poignant because some of these captains, you know, this was their life savings. This was what they did for a living was transport goods. They were not necessarily well, they didn't care one side or the other. My job is to transport goods. And they had invested in the ship. And and uh, so some of these some of these captains had, had a pretty tough time watching their ships burn. But that was the way that Sims was thinking the best and the only way, really, that the Confederate Navy uh, could, could make a difference in the Civil War was to make sure as few goods and other material as possible made it into the Union cause. Well, it, it, again, it's back to its goal was to interrupt or slow down trade or make people mm-hmm. think twice about shipping into the northern states and it developed quite a reputation and i'm sure it had that impact on folks um i think i I noted there was something like twenty thousand uh pow's uh taken off these ships and then released uh and i'm sure every one of them went on and told the story didn't they yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that about the reputation that the Alabama had, because as time went on and there would be reports that would end up in being published in newspapers in Boston, Washington, D.C., New York, uh, about the Alabama, it, be, it became this mythical ship. It was it was it was everywhere. You know, they were, they were, on the same in the same week, there could be an Alabama sighting in the Caribbean. There could be an Alabama sighting in the Pacific. Uh, off the coast of Europe, off the coast of South Africa. So it, it, it intimidated shipping, too. There was some. There were some captains that forget it. I'm not transporting any Union goods because I don't want to lose my ship. So that was like a ripple effect of its success. Was that there, it, 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 as you, the word you use, disrupt, is a very good one. It disrupted trade. Well, all, you know, <laughs> for Captain Sims, all good things come to an end mm. when his old buddy John, uh, Captain John Winslow uh, and the USS Kearsarge happens to be in Holland, and uh, the Alabama happens to go to France. Uh, to get uh, some of those repairs we were talking about earlier. And I don't know, you know, if, if the Kearsarge was outfitted better, it had some unique uh, uh, maybe tricks up its sleeve, but talk to us about the final battle. Well, you know, the, the Alabama was at a, 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 a disadvantage because uh, fewer and fewer ports would accept a Confederate ship as the war ground on, and I mentioned before, into 1864. You know, by then, Britain and France and, and Italy and some of the other uh, places in the world that previously had, had been, okay, yes, you can you can come in here and, and stay for a while and make repairs. We'll give you more coal for your engine. We'll you know, re, 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 get you some vittles, you know, so, so you could be at sea for another couple of months. Fewer and fewer of those ports were available, whereas a lot of ports were available to the Kearsage. So it, if it needed repairs, it can get them done easily. If it needed to replen- re- restock its, its food stocks, its coal for the engine, it could do that. So when um, when the Alabama put in at in Cherbourg, uh, you know they they had hoped that they could stay for a while and get some absolutely necessary repairs done. The ship was in was in pretty bad shape by then. But even in Cherbourg, they were told, "Well, we'll let you stay for a little while, but otherwise, you got to get out of here." You know, we we don't we, we see which way the wind is blowing, and we don't want to have trouble for the, when the Lincoln administration is up harboring a Confederate and maybe protecting a Confederate ship. 
So, uh, so Sam's, uh, instead of fighting that and he, and knowing that the, the, he sent a message to the Kearsarge, which had, you know, anchored outside the, the harbor, uh, we're coming out. And, uh, on a Sunday morning in June of 1864, the, uh, the Alabama left the, the protection of the, of the, of the port and came out and it met, uh, it was, what was a duel one-on-one, the Kearsarge and the Alabama uh, in the ocean off the coast of France. And they, uh, it was a pretty fierce battle. I don't know if I want to give away the ending, although I think some people can probably imply what ended up happening. <laughs> they can, and I, but I want to draw another parallel to, yeah. um, you know, this 1860s sea battle and what we do today. So today we're all kind of glued to our TV watching the uh, mm-hmm. Ukraine-Russian invasion and, and what's going on. How did the, the, the local French uh, countrymen around Cherbourg react to this uh, pending battle? Well, that's that's kind of a humorous aspect of the book. At least I found the humorous. It was it was a spectacle. It was entertainment. It was it was uh, you know it was two, watching gladiators in the ring. The gladiators happened to be a, a two ships, and they they came from all over. You know, when it was announced that the that the Alabama was coming out to take on the Kearsarge, people came from the the, the countryside into 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 Cherbourg. They climbed on roofs, uh, rooftops to get a get a uh, see what they could from there. Uh, people were selling food. It was the people were singing songs. It was it was a, uh, a festival. There were uh, cra- apparently you, you write uh, there were train loads of people who yeah, came out to uh, have a nice Sunday afternoon and watch the battle. Something like nineteen thousand people showed up. Um, yeah, and that was they, that was their television. It that was right. <laughs> they can watch from a, from the viewpoint of the shore. I mean, obviously you couldn't see that well because the they the, the two ships had to be beyond French territorial waters. Uh, but but it was it was very entertaining and and people were putting weight they were wagering, you know it's like like a sporting event now. Oh, with the they were wagering who's going to win. Okay, I'll put I'll put ten francs on the Alabama. I'll put twenty <laughs> francs on the Kearsarge. Well, it's an entertaining book with a lot of history packed in there. As I say, a lot of different people I think would like this. Whether you're a naval historian or a Civil War buff, or you know you were kind of interested in. Some of those early, how did, how did Britain and how did France interplay into the Civil War? Um, it's all in there as well as this great story about these two captains and, and giving them real life, which I think you were trying to do and you guys did a mm-hmm. good job. Thank you. I, I guess, you know, um, because we talked about it at the, the beginning, um, uh, Phil Keith has passed away. Uh, how much of the book got done while both of you were working on it, and how much of it did you have to complete uh, after his passing? Well, that's a good question because if I remember correctly, we had uh, the final draft of the manuscript was due March one of last year, and so we turned it in on time. Uh, I know authors hate when other authors say that because it puts them under the gun, <laughs> but but we we turned it in on time, and and Phil passed away ten days later. So uh, I, I you know I I was tasked with doing the production chores and everything that the author does uh, up to the point where a book is being published by myself. But it's amazing how often, uh, you know, like a copy editor had a series of questions. My first thought was, let me discuss with Phil, or uh, I'll see what Phil has to say about this, or maybe I'll do this part of it and Phil will do the other part of it. And then, you know, kept being reminded he's not here anymore. He's not here anymore. So, so there's a real, um, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm excited about the book to the other most ends of the earth. I think it turned out very well. I think a lot of it is because of Phil. 
And yet there's some sadness connected to its publication, too, because I, I know he would have loved to see how the book is being received. Well, and you, you mentioned that uh, in the last week or two, you had the chance to uh, meet up with his wife and have some lunch, and, and, and hopefully yeah, she yeah. also will feel this is sort of his last contribution to um, uh, you know, military writing and the history that he was so fond of. And the Navy man, you know, finishes up with a book, of a naval story. Really? So it's kind of appropriate. Yeah. No, it is. Uh, we want to recommend it, uh, Tom Clavin. We really appreciate you taking some time again today to talk My with pleasure. Veterans Thank Radio you. about your, the latest book, To the Uttermost Ends of the Earth. And uh, uh, Tom was prolific. Uh, I should say Phil was pro- prolific. And I know you are too, Tom. You probably got the next one in, wor- in the works already. Uh, do you want to give us a sneak peek of it? Yeah, I also collaborated with Bob Drury. Uh, our last book was called Blood and Treasure about Daniel Boone and the First Frontier. And for our next book, which will be out on November 1, it's called The Last Hill. And it's a story about the 2nd Army Ranger Battalion in the fall of 1944 uh, in the Hurtgen Forest. So that'll be out November 1st, The Last Hill. Well, we hope to get a copy of it and uh, hope to have you back again, Tom. uh, Thank you for spending a little time with Veterans Radio today. Thank you. I very much appreciate it. And I want to thank everybody for listening to Veterans Radio today. I am Jim Fossone. It's been a pleasure to be your host. I'm a veterans disability lawyer at Legal Help for Veterans, and you can reach us at 800-693-4800 or LegalHelpForVeterans.com on the web. You can follow Veterans Radio on Facebook and listen to its podcasts and Internet radio shows by going to VeteransRadio.net. And until next time, you are dismissed. If you have a VA claim denied by the Board of Veterans' Appeals, contact Legal Help for Veterans at 1-800-693-4800. They're experts in handling cases before the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims. Their number again, 1-800-693-4800. We again want to thank our national sponsors, the National Veterans Business Development Council, nvbdc.org, VA Ann Arbor Health Care System, the Vietnam Veterans of America, Charles S. Kettles Chapter, Ann Arbor, Michigan, VFW Graf O'Hara Post 423 in Ann Arbor, and the American Legion Press Corn Post 46, also in Ann Arbor. And the Veterans Lending Council, which advises lenders, realtors, buyers about VA Home Loan Program, and you can find them on Facebook. We appreciate all your support. You can go to veteransradio.net, click on the sponsor level and continue to support keeping veterans radio on the air and until next time you are dismissed